chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, and today we're going to pick up right where he left off. Last week, Greg taught us that God, in his grace, has moved us from the location of being dead in our sin to a new location of being alive in Christ. And this week, we're going to continue developing that idea, and we're going to talk about this in terms of not just location, but what that change in location means for the change in our identity. So if we've moved from being in sin to being in Christ, what does that mean? Well, honestly, it means a lot of things for us, uh, many of which, most of which we don't actually have time for this morning, but Paul's focus in Ephesians, and particularly in our passages for today, is the unity of the church. And just to clarify what I mean when I say the unity of the church, I'm talking about the whole church. I'm not talking about this building. I'm not even talking about just this congregation. I'm talking about all Christians everywhere for all time. In our passages for today, I want to draw out three things that Paul is communicating to the Ephesians, messages that are profoundly relevant for us today. First, Paul tells us that unity is our identity as Christians. Second, he discusses the radical nature of that unity. And finally, that unity gives us a picture of the image of God and of the coming kingdom. With that in mind, let's read from God's word, starting in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Then skip to chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So first, let's look at what Paul says about identity as the identity of unity of the church. Like Greg said last week, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all oriented around and talking about who we are. And the second three chapters are all about uh, what we do as a result of that. So since Paul places this passage of Scripture in the section where he's talking about who we are as Christians, we can imply and understand that Paul is saying that unity is a function of our identity. He wants us, to, wants us and really the Ephesians, to understand that unity is a function of our identity before we think about it as any sort of tangible thing that we do. Who we are defines what we do. Therefore, we really first have to understand who we are. So, who are we? Paul tells the Ephesians over and over again throughout this letter that to be a Christian means you are in Christ. And usually in the Bible, when you see something repeated over and over again, it's because the author is very intentionally trying to get the reader to focus on that thing. Our identity has been changed from one who is dead in sin to someone who is alive in Christ. You are alive because you are in Christ. And if all Christians then are in Christ, then we are in fact united with each other. Now this unity is a spiritual fact of our identity as Christians. It's not something we work toward. It's not something we build up to. It's something that God has done, period. The reality is, whether you are aware of it or not, whether you allow yourself to experience it or live into it or not, you, if you are a Christian, you are united with all other Christians. The question is, if our unity as Christians is a spiritual fact, then why are we so divided? Why does it seem like everywhere we look, churches are splitting over issues that have nothing to do with matters of good or bad theology? Why are there people in our churches that we just can't stand? Or who can't stand us, for that matter? 
Why are we holding grudges against our brothers and sisters in Christ? Why does conflict even exist in the church to begin with? But worse yet, why do we avoid that conflict so thoroughly that people would rather change churches than resolve conflicts with their brothers and sisters? The reason is because we don't actually understand the depth of the unity that we have. Because if we did, it would look a lot different. I'll reiterate this point. Our identity determines our actions. Who we are defines what we do. But what happens when we don't actually know who we are? We can't live into an identity that we don't know we have. Therefore, we really need to come to grips with just how radical and just how deep this unity in the church is. And luckily, I think Paul anticipated this problem. And he gave the Ephesians and us plenty of analogies for us to chew on. And it's going to take some chewing so that we can take just a few more steps closer to grasping the depth of our unity. He gives us three images to reflect on as we think about the unity in the church. He gives us unity as a worshiping community, unity as a family, and unity as a body. First, let's look at the unity we have as a worshiping community. Reread with me verses two, uh, from chapter 2, 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Paul mentions this dividing wall of hostility, and it's important to point out that in this instance, Paul's not speaking metaphorically. Uh, this wall that he's referring to is actually a physical dividing barrier that existed in the temple in Jerusalem. And I literally, I, I took this picture. It's kind of hard to see now that I look at it. Uh, I took this picture out of my study Bible as I was preparing to try to show you. Um, in the courtyard um, with the big wall, the thing enclosed by the big wall there, in that courtyard, that courtyard is divided into two sections. There's a small barrier between the two sections. The outer court is where Gentile believers could come and offer sacrifices and pray to the God of Israel. The inner court is where the Jews would do that. But on the edge of the barrier that divided the outer court of the Gentiles from the inner court, there were signs, some of which you can actually still find preserved in museums today, that threaten any Gentiles that violate that barrier with death. So when Paul calls this the dividing wall of hostility, he isn't kidding. Not to seem sacrilegious by comparing this church building to the temple of the Lord, or this stage, uh, for example, to the more holy places in the temple. But I want you, for the sake of the illustration, to imagine how comfortable would you be worshiping here if you knew that if you sat too close to the stage, a mob of people would kill you? How do you think you would feel about the people that you knew would do this to you? if you sat too close to the stage. 
This is the kind of hostility and division that we're talking about. And obviously, there are a lot of problems with this. But one main problem is that this layout of the temple, this structure, this division in the temple courtyard, was not only absent in the law, the, the thing that, you know, outlined how people were supposed to worship God, it's actually expressly forbidden in the law. In Numbers 15, 14 through 16, we read, For the generations to come, whenever a foreigner, or a, a Gentile, or anyone else living among you presents a food offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, they must do exactly as you do. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the foreigner residing among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply both to you and the foreigner residing among you. This is part of the reason why Jesus reacted so violently when he entered the temple and found the money changers and the animal sellers doing their business in the temple, because they were doing that in the court of the Gentiles. The one space that the, Gentile, that the Gentiles had available to them to actually worship the God of Israel was polluted with the smell of animal waste, the, the sound of buyers and sellers haggling for prices, the hot bustle of bodies trying to just get in, do their business, and get back out. Not really an environment very suitable for worship. But when God, when Paul talks about the unity we have in Christ, he says that Christ himself is our peace. And he destroys that wall of hostility and death. He tore down the barriers that stand between us. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Christ died on the cross, the veil that separates the most holy place, the place where the presence of God dwelled over the Ark of the Covenant, the place that only the high priest could enter, and even then only once per year, was torn in half. The presence of God is no longer bound by the walls of the temple. The question is for us, what dividing walls of hostility do we put up in our worshiping community? Who is it that you avoid when you come to worship? And why? Is it because of political affiliation? Or maybe it's just because they're kind of in a different age group from you, different generations. Or maybe it's race. I mean, there are countless things that we could probably list off. So honestly, ask yourself, how do I contribute to keeping these walls up? And how can I contribute to taking them down? Because that is our responsibility. And I want to take a second to, uh, to say that if uh, that because we live in a modern American individualistic society, I could probably end this sermon here and nobody would really bat an eye. Everyone here would probably be like, yeah, Nate, good sermon, you know, tear down those walls. I can, I can worship with anyone, you know, we're, we're united. This, I mean, this is America after all, right? But God doesn't just stop with tearing down walls. What we read in 2, 14 and 15, his purpose was to create in himself 
one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This is deeper than just walls that divide us, than just differences that divide us. God didn't just tear down walls. He made two people into one people. And so, because God doesn't stop with tearing down walls, neither do we. Our unity goes much deeper than simply being an undivided worshiping community. We are united as a family, as a household. So let's read Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, and then we'll skip to verse 19. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. So here we see this dichotomy being laid out between circumcision and uncircumcision. This is yet another point of conflict or division between Jews and Gentiles. But this division runs deeper than just a simple division in the place of worship. Israel was God's holy people. God chose them to be his nation. They took pride in the fact that they followed in the footsteps of their father, or patriarch, Abraham. And the culture that Paul was writing to with this letter, and especially the Jewish culture, was a patriarchal culture, which means, among other things, that families and households were organized such that men in the family held the authority, with seniority being determined by age and generation. The oldest living male was called the patriarch, or the head of the family. And the entire identity of individuals within this family was oriented around and largely determined by the head of the household. The mission of the family was to go out and bring as much glory and honor and positive reputation as possible to the family name. And you better bet that you would flee from any action or relationship that might compromise that honor. And for really notable or highly honored patriarchs, that identity-defining influence continued even after their death. And this was the case with the nation of Israel. I mean, if you look in the Old Testament, it's absolutely littered with whenever they refer to their God, he's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarch Abraham and his son Isaac, whom God chose instead of Ishmael, and Isaac's son Jacob, whom God chose instead of Esau. These are the fathers, the patriarchs of Israel, and they defined their national and religious identity around them. In the worldview of the Jews, the entire world was divided into two categories, or two families, if you will, those who were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everyone else. And the Jews thought that because they were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were, since they were a part of this chosen family line, that they were better than anyone else who wasn't. 
But what Christ did on the cross is absolutely counter to that. Not only did he tear down the barrier that existed between Jews and Gentiles, he actually took the two families, Abraham and everyone else, onto himself, took it to the cross, killed it, and resurrected them as one new household, one new family under Christ our head. So we are no longer divided by family lines. We are no longer members of competing families vying for the greatest reputation and honor, social status, or economic success. We are one family under Christ our head, united on one mission to give as much glory and honor to Christ, our patriarch, as possible, and to expand his family even wider by bringing even more people into it. But again, here lies another challenge for us, because when we take an honest look at the state of our church, this isn't the reality we see playing out. What does it mean to be a family under Christ? Well, to keep going with the family analogy, growing up, I think it's a pretty universal experience for everyone with siblings to experience conflict with said siblings. And when you experience conflict with your siblings, you sure, you get angry at each other. You say, might say some choice words. You might even throw some hands. But whether you are angry or not, whether you are in conflict or not, you remain siblings. You can't change that fact. Do you let conflict divide you from other believers? Do you let it fester? Do you let it sit? Do you gossip about it with your friends, forming factions? Or do you do the hard work of seeking them out, them being the people who have hurt you? Telling them honestly and yet gently how they have hurt you, and then offering them forgiveness and the assurance that you are committing to not holding this against them because they are your fellow Christian? And do you do this even before they ask you for it? Because if not, I want you to take another good look at the cross. And I want you to take another good look at how Christ pursued you and offered you forgiveness. And remember that any repentance, any change that you have shown since then has only ever been a response to what Christ has done for you. Or is it that you simply think of yourself as being better than someone else in the church? Maybe you've been a member for longer than they have. Maybe you've been a part of more small groups, you've volunteered more, you attended more Sunday services than they have. Do you use outward religious practice as a measure of who is in and who is out? Just like the Jews did with circumcision. <laughs> what is it that stops you from working together with your brothers and sisters toward the goal of glorifying our Father and making Him known? So at this point, I imagine some people are starting to squirm a little bit because this level of unity, as we get more and more intimate, challenges our cultural individualism, and we get uncomfortable with it. 
But it doesn't stop here. This unity goes beyond being fellow worshipers of the same God. It goes even deeper than being a part of the same family with Christ as our head. Paul tells us that we are, in fact, a part of a single body. To really see this, we have to pull out of a section of chapter 3 that we didn't actually read. In this first part of chapter 3, Paul says that there is a mystery that God has revealed to him. He calls it a mystery because this concept to him is so radical that it's hard for him to grasp. It's hard for him to wrap his head around. He describes it in 3.6 when he says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. It's really important for us to grasp what Paul is saying here, and I am very much um, limited on time to do it, so buckle up. <laughs> he says that, they are, that Gentiles have become sharers in the promise. What does that mean? What promise are we talking about? When God made his original covenant, his original promise to Abraham, he said that through Abraham's family, he was planning to redeem the world. And Abraham, after receiving this amazing promise from God, basically looks at him and goes, yeah, but how are you going to do that when I don't have any kids and this guy who is a servant in my household is going to inherit my estate? And God tells Abraham, go outside, look up at the night sky. I want you to count the stars if you can. And then he tells him, so shall your offspring But there's something odd about the way that God makes this promise to Abraham. The word offspring here is literally the word seed. And while it's not really all that uncommon for agricultural societies to use agricultural analogies to talk about their descendants, it is odd that God uses the singular form of this word. Your seed, singular, will be as many as the stars. And this is when us well-educated modern people say, now here you go, God. Look, your math, it doesn't add up. One can't be many. That's not how this works. But it does. We've been talking about all morning what it means to be a Christian is to be in Christ. Right? We are all, as Christians, in Christ, as one body, one seed. And who is Christ a seed of? Abraham. But now, Paul is telling us, both Jews and Gentiles, simply by the grace of God through faith, are in Christ, not only as a worshiping community, not only as a family, but as one body. Christ's body, with Jesus being our head. Therefore, Abraham's seed, singular, referring to Jesus himself, now outnumbers the stars, because all Christians, past, present, and future, are united in Christ. Now, this is a really difficult concept to grasp, but it's very important, because the Bible often refers to the church as the body of Christ. 
there's a good reason for it. God wants us to see that our unity, that we are united so thoroughly, so deeply, that we are interwoven like parts of a body. That means we are totally incapable of properly functioning without the other parts of the body. Just like if you cut off your hand, your hand ceases to be considered living organic matter because it's separated from the body. If you are not in Christ, you cannot reasonably be considered alive. You are dead. And this is the part where you can look at me and you go, Nate, um, dude, that's, that's all really great. Like, head knowledge, but like, where's the rubber meet the road, man? Let's go. Well, I'll tell you. If we're all a part of the same body, then each one of you is part of that body, and each part is unique and uniquely gifted to be a blessing to the rest of the body. The body only functions as intended when every part of the body does what it was designed to do. Two, if one part of the body suffers, gets injured, or gets sick in some way, the entire body suffers with it until it is healed. This means that if one of us Christians is suffering or is trapped in some pattern of sin, it affects every other Christian in the body because we are all connected. There is no such thing as their problem in the church. Your brother or sister's pain is your pain. There is no such thing as a private sin in the church. Any sin is a sickness that directly affects the rest of the body until it is uncovered, confessed, forgiven, and repented of. But on the flip side of that, if one part of the body is healed, if one part of the body is renewed, is strengthened, the whole body benefits from that. No matter what's going on with the rest of the body, no matter what other injuries the body may have sustained or illnesses it has, if one part is made better, the entire body benefits. Lastly, the parts of the body that are the most vulnerable are the parts that we give the most honor by protecting them more diligently than any other part of the body. Our brothers and sisters who are most vulnerable to exploitation or neglect, to the degradation by society's skewed standards of beauty, reputation, or merit, those are the brothers and sisters that require and deserve our most ardent defense and sacrificial love. So Paul uses all of these beautiful images to help us grasp how deep this unity goes and it flies in the face of our individualistic culture, where our religion is personalized and curated for our consumption. Paul tells us that when we're a Christian, we don't have that liberty. We are bound to one another with inseparable bonds of community, of family, and of body. But all of this still begs the question, why would God do it this way? Why go through all of the messy trouble of trying to get people to be unified together and resolve conflicts and deal with differences between each other? Why not just reconcile everyone to himself individually? Wouldn't it be easier that way? In order to see the answer to this question, we really 
have to go to Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3. And this prayer could easily be a sermon all of its own, but there's just two points that I want to draw from it. Paul desires for the Ephesians to deeply know the love of God. Paul prays that the Ephesians, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love which surpasses knowledge. Now, the word know and the word knowledge here are actually two different root words. Obviously, both of them, in some sense, mean to know something, or they wouldn't have been translated like this, but they have slightly different connotations. The first word, gnosko, carries with it the context of knowing something because you have deeply and intimately experienced it. To give you a picture of how intimate this knowledge is, this is the kind of knowledge that throughout the rest of Scripture is often used as a euphemism for the unity of a husband and a wife. That's the level of intimacy here. Now the second word, gnosis, this is the kind of knowledge that refers to general intelligence, the ability to comprehend something or how it works. This is the kind of knowledge that you get from reading a textbook or by being told about something by a more experienced person. When we understand this, we see that Paul is praying for the Ephesians to be so unified with each other that through that unity, they would actually experience and therefore intimately know the love that Christ has for them and for the world. The love of God, which exceeds the capacity of our minds, doesn't need to be comprehended to be experienced. And yet, the more you experience the depth of it, the deeper you go, the more you will understand it. But no matter how much you experience of the depth of it, you will never find the bottom. You can't comprehend it, but you can keep experiencing it forever and ever. This is the nature of an infinite God. Finally, Paul tells us that when we live unified as a body under Christ, God works through us to glorify himself and make himself known. In verse 20, Paul prays, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. His power. God is the one that unites us and urges us to remain united. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is saying here is that our unity in the church actually reflects the unity of God himself in the Trinity. God, eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, still their own person, and yet still the same God. We, still Nate, still Nick, still all of you individually, and yet also still one, one body under Christ. When we live like this, we image God in a way that we could never hope to do alone. 
And this love for each other imitates God's love within God's self. And it overflows into the care and the love of the rest of the world. Jesus knew this. Obviously. And before he went to the cross, in John 13, 34-35, he tells his disciples this. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Because by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to worship you in this house. To worship you as one people, as one family, as one body, your body. Lord, help us live this out. Help us understand our identity so that when we know who we are, we know what we ought to do. And Lord, fill us with your power, which is at work within us. Fill us with your spirit, because we know that if we just white-knuckle this, we're never going to get there. We need you, God. We need you to fill us. We need you to unite us, to make us a more clear, beautiful image of your nature, of your unity, of your love for your people. Lord, I ask this of the God who can do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. In the name of Jesus Christ. Rise.